Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Tonight on Revolt Black News Weekly. We glorify the Black Panther Party to create a culture of Disruptors of the status quo, from the Black Panther Party to the Black Lives Matter movement, both unapologetically black. But is the mission misunderstood? Plus, the smash and grab epidemic. You're a black, robbing a black business. That's not fair. The heated debate examines who's stealing, who's being robbed, and what's ultimately at stake. Deter some of these young people. Then I was on the ground here in Atlanta with Wyclef and New Edition as Atlanta celebrates our own at the Black Music and Entertainment Walk of Fame. And the I do versus I'll never relationship evolution. The sinking marriage rates speak volumes. But are black women unbothered about men putting a ring on it? And from dance crazes to the makeup tutorials, why TikTok's black creators are saying they want to get paid their respect and their race. All that and more as the black news revolution starts right now. Hello everyone, welcome to Revolt Black News Weekly. I'm Naima Abdullahi, and we're kicking off a brand new season, but continuing our mission to investigate stories and ignite conversations that serve the culture. And tonight, we begin with examining the legacy of black activism and revolutionary movements. So from the 60s Black Panther Party to today's Black Lives Matter movement, how do they differ? Where do they align? And how are they misunderstood? That's tonight's top story. Deputy Chairman Fred Hampton of the Illinois Black Panther Party. We hate oppression. I'm the founder of 23 different radical leftist organizations. I think that we glorify the Black Panther Party as a North Star for how we see a political formation use visual identity to create a culture around a specific political demand. Everybody knows that all the people don't have liberty, all the people don't have justice, and all the people don't have power, so that means none of us do. Black folks showing up unapologetically and disrupting what they understood was a white supremacist aesthetic. Having a mom that was a former Black Panther provided a household for me to grow up in that was rooted on Black love, um, Black freedom. The whole idea that came about Black is beautiful, and the Panthers embodied that. The Afros, you know, walking tall with your head up. They really started in uh, protest and opposition to the incredibly racist police force in Oakland, California. In California, you could carry a gun as long as it was out in the open. And so they would follow the police, and if the police jumped out to stop a black person, they would hop out with their guns and observe the police. The Second Amendment of the Constitution guarantees the citizen a right to bear arms on public property. 
all across the country, African-Americans are like, whoa, whoa, you know, we've been waiting for this. Different Black Panther Party uh, offices started hopping up all over the country. Revolution is the only solution. I then was married. I had two kids. I was angry. I, I was no type of husband, let alone father, because of the anger that I had. I was making an income by selling uh, marijuana. I dropped everything and, and joined the party. I had never seen that type of love of people for people. It wasn't like we was a rich organization with funds. Or we came together and started giving brothers some meaning. Hey, man, listen, uh, you don't need to be up in here committing these type of crime in your community. Come on in, little brother. Come on in, little sister. As the membership of the party grew, uh, the programs of the party grew. So breakfast for uh, school children program, a medical program, uh, a food giveaway program. Uh, we expect way over 6,000 people to uh, uh, come down and get their free bags of groceries. One of the things that, that we have to understand about the Panthers is, is, is there was a certain amount of genius uh, you know, for uh, controlling the media. Some people are saying you're racist and fascist as well. Would you On the that? contrary, how can I be racist? I don't lynch white people. A huge part of the Panthers was, was their newspaper. They had folks like Emory Douglas creating art and creating content, creative content, for the pamphlets of the Black Panther Party that articulated their political views so that folks understood what they were fighting for. We don't get it! That, for me, looks like creating art that communicates to the audience of this generation so that folks see that, get curious, and get inspired. Well, J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, said that the Panthers were the were the biggest threat to the security of the United States. And that kind of gave a license to law enforcement all over the country to crack down on, on, on the Black Panther Party. The New Orleans Police Department, they had enough money to go buy a tank. That don't make no sense. We was kids. I'm telling you from a perspective of, of a 74-year-old man, that we was nothing but kids. Over 100 police surrounded our office and just uh, almost shot it down. They didn't give us no option, you know, of, of coming out or anything. The infiltration and the counter-espionage that went on, especially from the FBI, you know, um, contributed to the breakup of the Black Panther Party. You know, you have to understand that there had never been anything like this before. Now we have the Panthers, you know, and so we know <clears throat> the lengths that the government will go through uh, to infiltrate and, and destroy organizations. I've seen my family pay it. What happened to my mother when, when the FBI went on her job? or my father when they went on his job. And they didn't commit no crime. Would I do it again? No. 
but uh, I am proud of the sacrifices that I could say that I could lead to my children and understand that this is uh, didn't happen overnight and it ain't going to end overnight. But this young generation, it's nothing more noble. Put your differences on the side, find that common ground, and continue to work. We have a responsibility to preserve the culture and history of our lineage and our legacy, and we have to pass that information on to future generations. So armed with that knowledge, they can build a future uh, for black folks that is rooted in liberation, freedom, joy. And we're firing up the conversation about the state of black activism today. Joining us are historian and strategist Xavier Buck, who is also the deputy director of the Huey P. Newton Foundation in Oakland, California, and former attorney Hawk Newsom, the co-founder of the NYC-based nonprofit Black Opportunities and the self-described realist voice in activism. Now, we should also mention that one of our guests from the Black Lives Matter Global Network respectively pulled out of the conversation today last minute when they learned that Hawk was going to be on the show today. Hawk, I want to start with you. What's your response to that? Uh, well, thank you for having me, Queen. Um, grace and peace. It's no surprise Black Lives Matter have gone out of their way to disassociate themselves from us, um, which is truly sad because we are one of the uh, strongest groups to ever carry the BLM banner. The reason why we invited both of you here today is to really look at the movement from a multi-generational standpoint. The Black Panther Party started in 1966. Now, when they were active, their demands were labeled as quote-unquote radical. Some of the things they wanted, we want freedom, full employment, decent housing, education, and to police brutality. Things are still being demanded to this day. Xavier, why do you think what the Panthers wanted were labeled as radical when it's just things that everyone now is also demanding. A lot of the ideas that we have today that are usually democratic left-leaning uh, politicians, they're really black liberation ideas that have been present in our communities for a long time. And it really just has to do with the history of race. Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba in our country, right? These aren't, these are basic rights, but when Black people say them, they're radical. As someone who regularly gives interviews to right-wing media outlets, do you feel your viewpoints are heard or is it used to tear down the work of Black activism? Because you pop up everywhere, well, right? Um, so I kind of want to make sure we talk about that as well. So um, when, let's say, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example of how you use the conservative media against the liberals who are in control. Like you understand that these conservative outlets are very racist or very skewed, right? But while you're on there, you have the opportunity to speak truth to power. And when we had this feud with New York's mayor over him bringing back the old way of policing, and what we were saying was there are other ways to combat crime than with police. And the main uh, thing that we highlighted was cure violence. When you pay groups of ex-gang members, formerly incarcerated people, to go in and de-escalate violent situations in our communities. No one paid it attention. They act like they didn't hear it. 
but the mayor adopted this policy. So whereas the uh, Dems would like to bash me and say, oh, he's not real BLM or he's this or he's that, he's extremist, why? Because I'm not a tap dancing Negro, but the Republicans give me that opportunity. Even though it's mostly confrontational with them, I can still use them as a weapon against the other. Hawk, it seems you are pretty strategic about your brand, where it goes, and the power of being heard. I want to shift our attention back to BLM. There's an unfolding controversy around the finances of Black Lives Matter that we should discuss. And to reiterate, we invited a guest from the Black Lives Matter Global Network who respectively declined to be part of our panel today. Now, in 2020, the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation reportedly took in more than 90 million in donations, but has failed to submit required fiscal reports accounting for that money and where it went. And last week was suspended from Amazon's charitable giving platform, Amazon Smile. We should say that BLM recently updated its accounting procedures, allowing them to delay reporting where that money went that was received until May of 2022. So they have about three months left. But that has not stopped criticism and confusion about the organization. My question is, do you think that this controversy casts a shadow on the work of organizers and the movement as a whole? Hawk, I want to start with you. What's going on with BLM Global's finances is of the utmost concern. Because that's what the streets say to me, right? I'm not I'm not one of these activists who hang out in these social circles and you know these 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 what do you call it spoken word lounges. No, I'm in the streets. I'm on the corner. I'm in the South Bronx. I'm out here with the drillers and the trappers trying to serve my people. So my people, the people in the streets, are like, bro, where the bread at? What happened with the money? So we have to address that. We have to address our people in a real way. Now, if they were to turn around and say, why y'all ain't asking for the Salvation Army money? Why you not asking for the for the Boys and Girls Club money? I'd have been like, yeah, yeah, that's what, that's what the media should be asking, right? Xavier, I also want to give you a moment to respond to that criticism that BLM has been going through with where the money is going. Who is it supporting and where is it at? I'm not, I'm not in Black Lives Matter. You know, I'm not a, in leadership there. What I will say, is, I think a thread that's been going on in this conversation is about the media. They're getting a lot more attention than other organizations have, right? And so just being really particular about how we talk about Black organizations in the news, uh, how we comment on them, because I do feel like we're always under attack. And I think whether or not Black Lives Matter uh, is doing everything right, maybe they are, maybe they're not. I don't know. I'm not here to say that. I'm just saying, we know they're getting attacked from all ends. And so let's tread lightly. Xavier and Hawk Newsom, thank you both for joining us today on this discussion. Black Panther Party, 1966, it's been 56 years. The movement continues with so many different organizations wanting to move the culture and the people forward. Both of your perspectives were really appreciated today. And thank you for joining Revolt Black News Weekly for this discussion. The revolution continues after the break. It looks like something out of a video game, but it's a reality. The rise of smash and grab crimes is unfolding like never before, all captured on camera, which you see right here. But what's the real reason behind so many retail thefts? 
Welcome back, everyone. Experts say the spike increased as hundreds of stores closed during the start of the pandemic, but more data points to an underground marketplace. In the end, it trickles down to the consumer. So what's the consequence and what's the solution? Here to hash it all out, we have former Arizona police officer Brandon Tatum, Keith Strickland, founder and CEO of Making the Transition, and Austin Gary, managing partner for RCR Consignment Boutique. We're going to start off with Keith, who is in studio right now. Keith, as you look at the videos back to back nationwide, we're seeing the epidemic happening. What do you think contributes to this issue on a greater scale? First, I would say if you think about people who are already living in poverty, mm -hmm. they already were having a hard time. People were already struggling to take care of their families or feed their children. So when the pandemic hit, people started losing their jobs or at least losing hours. You have people who already didn't have resources that are in even a worse position now. As a community member, you work on the grassroots level to help the youth and to help juveniles. How do you specifically connect with this story, with your come-up story of learning things the hard way in life? I would say for me personally, I can't remember when I was a child who didn't know how I was going to eat or where I was going to sleep. And I remember the things that I did. Uh, I remember breaking into cars, steal car radios, and selling weed and selling other drugs on the corners. And at the at that time and that place in my life, I really thought there was no other way for me to survive. There was no other options for me. So I did a lot of things that looking back at it, what I know now I would have never done. But that's why we have to be engaged. That's why we have to mentor, we have to give exposure, we have to create opportunities. Because if you don't, people are going to continue to do the same things. Um, Brandon, from a law enforcement standpoint, you help communities in situations like this. What do you make of this happening on a nationwide level with all the spikes that we're seeing in smash and grab crimes? Yeah, I think that some of these crimes, or probably majority of these crimes, are due to opportunities. You know, I think a lot of criminal behavior is opportunistic in the lack of policing uh, because of the defund the police movement and other movements that have just demoralized and destroyed the police departments around the country. They're not able to be proactive. So it creates this vacuum of a black market. And I don't necessarily think these individuals who are doing smashing grabs are necessarily the, the ones in the community who are struggling. I think it's people who have opportunities to make money. I want to bring in Austin into this. You've been a victim of property crime. Your business has been hit twice. How have you been able to keep your business open in the midst of smash and grab kind of targeting your, your business twice? Everyone should be accountable for what they do in reference to business. My business is not to keep me afloat. I have staff from East to West Coast. Everyone should be accountable with their actions falsely. So it's effective because I have to eat. I have to feed other families that has to eat. So at the end of the day, I have no sympathy with people that come in and steal. I do think that we have to hold people accountable, but I also think that we have to be accountable ourselves to say that these are our neighbors, our brothers, our sisters, and we got to help them. I respect everything that he said. No disrespect. I'm very accountable. I don't respect the people that come in to basically toxic a business that's legitimate. I pay my taxes. I'm a God-fearing man, not saying that you're not Keith or Brandon. However, I did nothing to my community. I do what I do because we gave money back to the community. Brandon, who should be held um, accountable? What's your perspective on accountability? Generally speaking, you, you're committing a burglary. If you assault someone while in commission of these crimes, that's a felony crime. These things are already on the books. So 
I think that people should be prosecuted for the crimes that are on the books. The problems that we see is that some places are decriminalizing some of these actions that are against the law on the books. And when a person, you know, is brought to justice, they don't do any time. They get let off. They're not arrested. The prosecutors are failing to prosecute it. So I'm just I just want us to live up to the standard in which we establish, meaning that if it's against the law, let's hold people accountable to that. And that is the end of it. If we do not help people who are in disadvantage, you're only going to have an increase in crime. There's no way around that. The accountability is you're robbing hardworking individuals like yourself, Keith and Brandon. Why? Because at some sense of your lifestyle, you decided to do something different. And it worked out for you. I'm sorry. Brandon, as you're hearing that response, should we have sympathy for them? I mean, what responsibility do store owners have in really protecting their businesses? Yeah, I think the, the store owners, if they if they want to be uh, intelligent about it, they know that this is a crime that is being committed. And if you use if you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. It's measures like hiring security, which it costs. So don't get me wrong. It's not like they're, they're handing out free security. But if you have the flexibility within your budget, be proactive. So hire security, lock your doors, make sure you, if you, if you have a little bit more stuff there, um, deter some of these young people. Be in the community. I think that everybody on the panel has said something amazing and, and it's applicable to the situation. Be in the community, build relationships with some of these young people and, and, and maybe you will fare better. But I do think that it's that as a business owner, I'm a business owner, that that you should be proactive in your approach to try to prevent these people from coming into your store and smashing it up and, and taking you know all of your property. Um, I understand that people feel sorry for these young people who are out here. But I was once a young man. I know a lot of people that grew up in the hood and you don't have to commit crimes. But it goes back to what Keith was saying is that we do need leaders in the community to focus on building these young people up, building their minds, their confidence. So they don't go and destroy build buildings and establishments within our own community. So the, the bottom line with with your with response to what you asked me is that businesses can be proactive and try not to be. Um, the next subject of a smashing ground. Brandon, Austin, Keith, thank you for being here and holding nothing back. All right, coming up, we investigate the coupling controversy as we look at black love and marriage and question whether the institution has kind of gone out of style. With black Americans marrying at the lowest rate in modern history, we go inside the battle of the sexes coming up next. Hey guys, welcome to Atlanta. I'm Yolanda Adams and this is Revolt Black News. I'm about work, I'm about career, and tomorrow I'm gonna introduce myself to the new department head and make her fall in love with me. Yes, that's my baby. See, I've been healed by black girl magic. Yay! Single and ready to mingle. The ladies of Amazon's hit series Harlem are not sorry about maintaining their solo status. Welcome back to Revolt Black News Weekly. I'm Naima Abdullahi. Now, as more and more black women are seemingly saying, I do not when it comes to marriage, we're getting deeper into the debate about the future of the black family unit. We're gonna hash it out with our panel today. Joining me, content creators Dominique Daniel and Tynesha 
Waters and femininity coach and author Kendra Davis and our very own entertainment correspondent Kennedy Rue McCullough. We're going to start with you, Kennedy. So when we hear relationship goals, yes, Beyonce, Jay-Z, Will and Jada, mm-hmm. Remy Ma, Papoose, are those relationship goals? Because a lot of people aspire for what they see on social media. Right. And you know what? I think that's really important that we bring up the social media aspect because that does have something to do with the way we see ourselves reflected. And maybe we do inspire to um, some of these situationships. I don't think mm. we should be aspiring to anybody's relationship as a benchmark for what we should be emulating in our own lives. I don't think that we should be emulating celebrities because as you know, we only get a piece of the story. We don't see their day-to-day. We don't see their everyday life. Mm. We don't see what they go through. So I think that it's limiting for us to have a mentality that's focused on celebrity relationships. Definitely agree. I think that social media is a facade in general. So it's super dangerous when you are comparing real life relationships to what you're seeing online. I want to bring in some data. Yale researchers argue that, quote, marriage chances for highly educated black women have declined over time relative to white women. Kendra, what do you think attributes to that steady decline? Because I think of how we're really socialized, especially in our community, we are socialized as strong and independent. And once we get the degree, the money, the profession, once we have mobility, once we have those things, we have decided largely as Black women that the union of marriage is unnecessary. And we have actually whittled down the marriage to just the finances. If I can do the finances myself, I don't need to have a union. And that's really a form of selling out. The term sellout is something that I truly, I would say is a pretty harsh, but not, I don't agree with that at all on the sense of Black women that are now educated who are financially stable their standards of not tolerating just anything to come into their life and disrupt their peace is more the reason why they won't marry or why we won't uh, consider a companion. If I put in the work, in the, in the time to make myself my better version of myself, I'm not going to marry someone who, first and foremost, if you, again, most of the time if they can't provide financially, that's fine. You need someone who can accommodate you with the other things emotional, mental, those type of support systems in your life. And if somebody's not contributing that type of thing to your life, then there's no reason for them to be there. So now the standard is you actually have to have substance. And I still stand by my statement of selling out. When you sell something out, or when a person sells out, it's not just relegated to the entertainment issues or or, or other types of things. A person sells out when they sell the spiritual part of themselves for money. Black women have forgotten the true reason for being married. What is the true reason of being married from your perspective since you're saying Black women are selling out? That's a very strong statement to make. Black men and Black women under the duress of slavery could not get married. They didn't want us creating the union at all. So what we were doing 
was we were going behind the shed and jumping the room to be with one another. Because at some point our ancestors understood that the union actually made her strong. I feel like now it's 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 not something that you have to do. It's something that you can choose to do. I think that with a lot of Black women, we're realizing that we might have at one point said we wanted to get married or to have a relationship, but as the years have gone on, we don't behave in a manner that aligns with being in a relationship or getting married. And so when that happens, you have two decisions. You can either change your behavior to align with wanting to get married, or you can change your thought and say, I don't want marriage. And I think that a lot of women are choosing the latter instead of making the adjustments that are needed to be in a healthy relationship. I don't agree with that. That last part you said for women to have a hard time adjusting, you have to keep in mind, just because a man is a man doesn't make him a great leader. Some women are very strong intellects. And a lot of times, if you don't have someone who can cultivate your mind, a lot of times you don't want to submit to people who you don't trust their judgments. Can it exist without a man, Kendra? No. Black family units do not exist without men. Black people since we've been in this country have been striving for unity. We have been striving for togetherness. How can we come together and be and have better mobility in this country as a group of people? We've found ourselves unable to really move forward in this country and we wonder why. We can't unify at the basic level that people unify, and that's in America. We can't have communities if there's no family. What do we think this stuff is built out of? You're yeah. hearing three women who are passionate about sharing their viewpoints, mm -hmm. which shows a dynamic conversation, the kind of conversation we need to have on air. Yeah, How are you processing absolutely. a lot of their responses? It's so interesting to hear all these different takes because, Naima, I think this concept is very layered. Mm. And for me, I'm a huge proponent of black love. I believe in it. I champion it. I root for it. But I think within our community, the way that we define family is in terms of a nuclear family. Mm. A mom, a dad, two kids, 2.5 kids, the dog, the, the white picket fence. And I think that the way we quantify family mm. has to change because families look different for everybody and they right should look different for everybody. Thank you all for chiming in. I don't want this conversation to end. I wish I could talk about it forever, but we ran out of time. You're going to be right back because yes. guess what? The Black Entertainment, Entertainment Walk of Fame. Yes. How was it? How was the ceremony? Oh my gosh. The ceremony was so beautiful, Naima. It was so nice to be able to come together and celebrate some of our favorites and give them their flowers in a city that's been a cultural hub for Black history. I mean, what better place to do it than Atlanta? Looking forward to that. Also ahead, black creators calling for their cut of the social media pie. What you need to be saying when it comes to knowing your worth, that's straight ahead. Yo, it's your boy Dallas Austin. You're watching Revolt Black News. And you know what? We're in the ATL. Welcome home, y'all. I'm a savage. Classy, bougie, ratchet. That is the 15-second clip that turned into more than 15 minutes of fame for Kiara Kiki Wilson, making her a viral sensation on TikTok. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back. Now, her viral dance to Meg Thee Stallion's hit song catapulted the Savage Challenge into becoming one of the biggest dance crazes on the app. But 
Kiki is among a growing number of black creators revolting and raising their voices to demand their fair share of not only credit, but to get paid for their creativity compared to white content creators. To discuss the issue, we have Shayna Douglas, TikTok influencer, Keith Dorsey, CEO of Young Guns, Isaac Hayes III, founder of Fanbase, and Brittany Bright, founder of the Influencer League. Here's what they had to say. Brittany, I want to mention a tweet that you tweeted out. You said, influencers can't change the industry alone, but the least we can do as black creators is charge more. So brands have no choice but to be more considerate with their budgets. As trendsetters, they need us, not the other way around. What did you mean by that? As black creators, we set all of the trends on social media. We're the ones that's making uh celebrities and their music go viral on TikTok. And so when I say that the brands need influencers, not the other way around, um, Black influencers basically need to charge more because if we charge more, if we are, you know, um, knowing our worth when it comes to working with these brands, then they have no choice but to increase their budgets because you're either going to have an all white campaign or you're going to pay Black influencers what they're worth. On TikTok, I feel like it's a whole different ball game because the algorithm is different and everything is pretty much, you can have zero followers and the next day have 10,000. So I think that just securing the bag in general, it's different. I do think that some black creators do not have the knowledge about brand deals and things like that. I didn't really at first, especially with like media kits and like you have to really have like all of your analytics all in a row. You have to find like, I guess the happy medium of being yourself personally and then making it a business. One of the main things is the knowledge of what to charge that a lot of these creators, they just generally don't know. We did something with a big company and we, I charged a price that was a good price for them and we were great. It was like amazing. But then the company reached back out because they really wanted to help. And it was like, well, you know, you guys charge a little bit less than everyone else. And this was a big check. So I think the problem is if they don't know, then they don't really know what to charge. Sometimes they technically undercut themselves. Isaac, 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 this is a conversation you've been having for years on your Instagram and different platforms as well. You even went on The Breakfast Club to also talk about it. I don't care how much TikTok promotes in the U.S. That company is in China. That is an algorithm that is in China. They have very poor data on people of color and their overall goal is to um, cater to the larger audience of white consumers in the United States of America. Let's talk about the algorithm game. What's your insight on that? Because you really have studied this and dissected it. Yeah, um, I mean, the algorithm game is messed up. Uh, I think what people need to realize is that platform is actually working against you. Instagram is in competition with its user base. So what they do is they smush your content down to about three to 4% visibility. So they're allowed to run an ad-based business and then have you fight the algorithm by saying post more content so they have more content to run ads in between. So if you're running an ad campaign to reach the majority of users on a particular platform that happen to be white, let's say TikTok, right? Then you're going to want to serve ads that cater to white users. So to be able to do that, you have to have very famous white people that generate engagement from other white people to show those ads. So it behooves TikTok to have white, white famous people as opposed to black famous people, because then companies may or may not be trying to reach the African-American community. They might be trying to reach the overall 
uh, population of the United States in general. Last year, we saw black creators kind of get together and go on a strike. It was hashtag black TikTok strike, where black creators didn't participate or create dance challenges to prove a point, right? So in response, obviously, TikTok issued an apology and launched programs like TikTok for Black Creatives, a three-month program in partnership with Macro, focusing on nurturing and developing 100 talented black creators and music artists. Uh, Shayna, in your opinion, how are programs like this helping bridge that uh, racial uh, pay gap for black digital content creators, or is it? I think that this is an ongoing problem that might be more than just us, because it obviously is a huge problem among like black TikTokers and creators on the platform. I think maybe it's even deeper to say that maybe even the technology used on the app might be a little bit against certain creators or certain people. When you have those uh, programs like the TikTok Black Creator Program that a lot of TikTokers don't even know about, um, there, I mean, it's, a, it's an issue on top of the fact that if it's a program that's dedicated to helping only 100 Black influencers, what about the rest of the Black influencers who don't get accepted to it? These programs are only helping creators utilize their specific app but it's also not making the changes that's going to help these influencers down the line. So if you're in this TikTok program, um, that's not helping you get better reach in the algorithm. That's not helping you secure better brand deals. It's just teaching you how to use the platform, which they already know how to do. I just truly believe there's nobody in the United States of America that is employed by TikTok that can do absolutely anything. I believe all those people that work for TikTok are just there to save face because that is a privately owned company that is in China. They will operate exactly how they want to operate. They will shadow ban, they will block, they will disrespect African-American culture and change absolutely nothing about it. The only thing that will affect TikTok by way of black creators is if black creators leave. Unless they, they have to honestly just pick their stuff up and leave. And unfortunately, um, we are programmed to fight to stay in places where we're not wanted uh, rather than exiting and building our own, which is really why I built Fanbase the real solution would be just up and leaving, but they're not going to do it because of what what they pretty much already have. Let's really look at the dynamic between the two, because if they're not leaving because they're in love with the clout, they're worth more than they're getting paid. Um, how can we kind of look at it from that perspective? I, I don't think you can. Um, there's simply nothing like that is going to change about that. The main thing that was delaying that process is there were not options. There were not choices, right? If I leave TikTok, where am I going to go, right? There's nowhere to go. And so that's, again, why fan base is stepping in to fill that void. The technology and the culture under the same roof is a threat to them because where can they exploit Black culture? Where can they use Black people and Black dances and Black music to make a whole bunch of views to run ads if there are no Black people there? When it comes to getting paid what you're worth, what do you think needs to be done for that pay gap? What do you think are solutions that should be implemented? Really having confidence to ask for more and also collaborate with other Black creators and other Black brands. It's really important for us to also educate our influencers on other streams of uh, revenue that they could be bringing in as well so that, you know, a year from now, five years from now, they're not still relying on these brand deals. I can make everything that TikTok and Instagram can make. I can make every button, every feature, they can't make what I'm made of. They can't make black people. They can't make black culture. They can't make us. So 
There's nothing that they can do. There's nothing that they can do to stop us. To all of our panelists, thank you. Hopefully black content creators take the steps to know their worth in this space and on every social media app. We'll be right back after the break. Hey everybody, it's Ja'Kaylin Carr and I wanna welcome you to Atlanta. There is nothing like a marching band to get the party going. The Pebble Brook High School's marching band from Mableton, Georgia, kicked things off at the Black Music and Entertainment Walk of Fame ceremony here in Atlanta. And Kennedy Rue McCullough is back with me at the studio. Kennedy, you were there. How was the ceremony? Yes, Naima. I mean, a few words come to mind. Empowerment, celebration of our own, and Black culture lifting up our icons, now immortalized in the ATL. What does this honor mean for you today? It's a culmination of a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, a lot of victory, a lot of triumph, um, a lot of failures at the same time. But we stepped out on faith from Boston and from D.C. With that, new additions Ricky, Bobby, Ralph, Ronnie, and Johnny hopped off their touring schedule to receive the ATL honors. Almost 40 years later, we sit and uh, get a chance to smell our flowers as we're here, all six of us, right, in the Black Mecca. Uh, this is the best place for this to happen, and uh, we're so elated and uh, just grateful. Those any for lifers out there, they've been propping us up for years and praying for us. And speaking of praying, the deaconess of devotion Yolanda Adams couldn't help but take in that moment of being cemented in history. What was it like seeing your legacy immortalized in such a way that would live on far beyond, I mean, our generation, the generation next after us, the generation after us? I mean, this is cemented forever. It is cemented forever, and it. I don't think that I'll really get the gist of it yeah. because I'm overwhelmed right now. This literally was the crown jewel of excellence. Jewels represent not only prosperity, but it, it, it also represents what we've gone through, through tribulation. And with gospel legend B.B. and C.C. Winans as part of the class, it was Brother B.B. representing at the Walk of Fame brunch. And when you look at the list of your accolades, and all the recognition you've gotten over the course of your career, where does this rank in that? <laughs> it goes up to the top. Yeah. Again, um, I, I love Atlanta. Mm -hmm. um, I live down the street from Atlanta. Lord, lift us up where we belong. Whenever our people recognize me and my sister, it's just at the top of the list. A list of classmates that included Smokey Robinson, who attended virtually, as did Tyler Perry. Being part of the Walk of Fame means a great deal to me. A man with a vision, building a company from the ground up, starting with nothing more than an $800 loan. Rhonda Ross, Diana Ross, and Barry Gordy's daughter took center stage to honor her dad. When we talked about the Black Walk of Fame, it was never against the Hollywood or us in competition, mm -hmm. we said we want to do us for us. Broadcast Music Inc. creative VP Catherine Bruton was among the leaders to join Georgia State Representative Erica Thomas and celebrate our own for a second year to preserve history. 
I think it was so important that we did it not just in Black Music Month, but we're doing one um, in Black History Month. Mm -hmm. um, we're trying to lay down um, these crown jewels to give the due diligence. This class was special in many respects, and then to have Wycliffe fly in to celebrate fe um, fellow Kute was just like, wow. Wow is an understatement. The Fuji's member busted out a guitar set to pay homage to the Nigerian pioneer of Afrobeats. Fella learned jazz, and what he did was he took what he learned back to his country, and then he was able to, to, to revolutionize it. A revolutionary day in staying unapologetically black, all right here in Atlanta, the Hollywood of the South. We'll always be aspiring to be better than we were the year before. What an inspiring afternoon of speeches and performances. Kennedy, was there a tribute that got everyone off their seat? There was, Naima. I mean, Bow Wow was there to rep his uncle Snoop. And shout out to the tribute band Trap Jazz. They did a medley of Mary J. Blige and Snoop's hits. Everyone was on their feet jamming. Wow, that sounds like <laughs> such a great time. Thank you so much for your report. And that does it for us. I'm Naima Abdullahi. We'll see you next time right here on Revolt Black News Weekly. Hey there, ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah, or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before.